the better of motivation. So we and all other sentient beings exist under the influence of ignorance, afflictions, and karma. So we don't have any true freedom. We're controlled by, we arise due to causes and conditions, so we are controlled by them. And yet, so often we we are negligent in terms of really thinking through what kind of causes and conditions do I want to create and what kind of future do I want to have. So the Buddhist perspective really enlarges our mind to think about these kinds of things and not just to get sunk into the small details of this life and fret over them. So let's do that right now and enlarge our perspective, not only in terms of what our own life is, but all sentient beings and being aware of our fortune of having met the Dharma. Let's make a strong determination to make use of that fortune and to work for the benefit of sentient beings by learning how to overcome our own ignorance and afflictions, by realizing emptiness, and how to overcome also the cognitive obscurations through the power of meditating on emptiness supported by bodhicitta. And in that way, though it may take a long time, we will progressively master the paths and grounds to full awakening. And as we do so, we'll become happier and more peaceful ourselves and be able to benefit others more effectively in the short term as well as the long term. So let's make that our motivation. So we've been talking about death, the nine-point meditation on death. Did I describe the, I can't remember if I went into depth about it, the meditation of imagining your own death? Okay, this one's quite powerful because we're at the point in the book where we're talking about the actual death process. But before that, um, it's very helpful to to, uh, think about possible scenarios for your death. Yeah, and possible scenarios for 
you know, like dying instantly without, you know, suddenly without any warning or uh, being diagnosed with a terminal illness or being in an accident or thinking of, you know, different ways that our body could be damaged and how are we going to deal with that kind of thing um, with the uncertainty of whether we will die sooner or later uh, or with the knowledge that this is definitely terminal. Of course, we have a terminal condition right now. Okay, so we're always kind of afraid of getting a terminal diagnosis from a doctor but we shouldn't be because we're already terminal. As soon as we're born, we have a terminal condition. So uh, it, it's really quite revealing to imagine different scenarios and think, you know, what happens if I'm not feeling well? I go to the doctor. He takes some tests, yeah, and then it comes back. I have cancer or a kidney <coughs> failure or, you know, I need surgery on my spleen or, you know, I'm diabetic and so all the risks that come with diabetes. And, you know, Imagine in your meditation going in the doctor's office after having these tests and they're telling you about your physical condition. And it really is dawning on you that, you know, it's not going to be a long time before you die. And you don't know when it will be. You know, it could be three weeks or three months or three years. So you have that completely amorphous timeline that doesn't exist and yet uh, you know there's things you want to take care of and so think about it you know how is that going to affect you if you um, you know get a diagnosis and they tell you well you have about three or four weeks if you're lucky and uh, you know what are you going to what are you going to do in those three four weeks and who are you going to tell and how are you going to manage the reactions of the people you tell? You know, the people who freak out, who you have to take care of while you're trying to get your own head together. Um, or are you not going to tell those people? Uh, do you have your will in order and your power of attorney in order? Um, or is your mind still going around about who you want to you know, clean your things out or find out, you know, all the things you've been hiding that, uh, you know, when they go through your papers. You know, you haven't been hiding them, but you just haven't been publicizing them. You know, and then somebody's going to go through your papers and find out, oh, well, she actually had, you know, $200,000 stashed away somewhere. We didn't think we should, she had anything. Or, um, you know, oh, uh, she has a, you know, a brother we never heard about. Or, or uh, 
you know, she doesn't want her family to know that she's dying or, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, so how are you, who are you going to tell? How are you going to manage their reactions? And what do you still have left to do? And, you know, are, have you been pining away for the time when you can go to Disneyland because that's the first thing on your bucket list? Or is it that you want to go to Omeshan? Yeah, or you want to go to Lhasa? And are you going to be able to go? And how are you going to feel if you can't go? Yeah. And, and so all these different kinds of things. And what projects are you in the middle of doing? And uh, how are you going to feel about leaving all these projects? Are you going to take some time and hand them over to somebody? Are you just going to, you know, go into retreat and let everybody figure it out later after you're dead? Or, um, you know, <laughs> what, what, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. And who has the passwords to your computer? Or are you just going to, you know, drive them all crazy because you're very protective of your passwords and you don't want people to even know what they are when you're alive? And then they won't know what they are when you're dead. And then they won't be able to distribute your things the way you want or they won't be able to get all the Abbey information that's on your, you know, your computer because you've been so afraid that somebody's going to read your email that you haven't given anybody any of your passwords. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and so then are you just going to think, well, okay, they'll figure it out. Too bad. I'm going to go meditate. Or are you going to sit down and, you know, explain everything to somebody else? Or what are you going to do when they're freaking out and saying, how can you die? How can you leave us? You know, we're not ready for you to die. And who do you need to apologize to? And who do you need to forgive? And are you going to call, call those people up? Or are you, you not? Are you going to wait and hope they call you before you die? Or are you okay without talking to them before they die? Yeah, so all these things. So it's a very interesting meditation to do that and really pretend like, you know, this is it. Yeah. And what are you going to do with all your, your photographs? Yeah. And, uh, you know, all your photographs online, all your scrapbooks. Yeah. Can you part with them or do you want them to put... Uh, want people to put them in the Abbey Museum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do you want to be known? Yeah. Are you going to write your own obituary? Or are you going to ask somebody else to write it and then you edit it before you die? <laughs> you know, because I want good grammar in my obituary and I want to make sure you say certain things and don't tell other things. So it's very funny when we talk about it like this. But when you really sit down and you think about it, you know, and I'm dead and somebody else is going through all my stuff, you know, and all the things I've written that are an email to other people, you know, and somebody's going to read that. They're going to look at in all my files. 
you know? Am I somebody who, who saves every single receipt for everything that's been spent? I told you about my friends before who were appointed executors for a lady who lived down the street from them. They had to figure out all of her financial things. They said she kept piles and piles of receipts from when she bought post <laughs> toothpaste, from postage stamps. You know, they had no idea of her bank accounts, if she had life insurance. It was like such a hassle for them. Yeah. And then what do you what do you do? You know, you have some prized photographs, but somebody else is gonna look through them and say, What's this garbage? Yeah. Or your stuffed animal collection. Huh? And somebody's gonna come through and say, What's going on here? Yeah. So just remember, the two stuffed animals I have were given to me by my teachers. They're not things that I bought my myself, and I don't go to bed hugging them. Okay, they keep them because they were gifted by my teacher. So don't think badly of me after I'm dead. Yeah, and you watch when you're doing this how much you care about your reputation after you're dead. Yeah, how much you want people to understand why you did what you did when you were alive, even though you're dead and you're going to have no idea of what they're thinking. But you want to arrange it, every all your confidential stuff that they're going to flip through so that they'll have a good image of you. Yeah. Or are they going to, you know, go in your room and find that you're like Ameldo Mar Amelda Marcos and you have 50 pairs of shoes? Yeah. And you're supposed to be a renunciate. But in your closet are so many pairs of shoes. Yeah. And so many jackets and so many pairs of socks. Two feet, but many pairs of socks. Yeah? And what? And they don't match, but that's okay. That's in to have socks that don't match now. Don't you know that? You haven't been looking at the socks of our guests? Yeah? When you're in your teens and 20s now, you deliberately have socks that don't match. It's in. Got it? You look uncertain. <laughs> yeah. So very interesting to think about and see what comes up in your mind. And what happens if I die today and I don't have the chance to go through everything and make it look like it's like I'm really nice? Yeah. What happens if they start looking through my drawers now? Yeah. And they come upon sheets of paper that are printed on both sides and they don't know which side it is that they're supposed to read and which side is the recycled side of the paper. Yeah. Uh -huh. And how, you know, how many boxes of 
Kleenex you have in your bathroom. Because you see, okay, when I when people give me boxes of tissue that are the soft ones that aren't the recycled ones, so they're the soft ones, I never ask for them, but people give them to me. And I save them for when I have colds. I don't use them for in-between things because when I get colds, my nose is like a faucet and those soft ones are much better. Otherwise, I look like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. But what happens if I die and people don't know that's why I saved all the boxes of soft tissue? And they go in my bathroom and they see those. And they go, she used to talk, you know, she used to say, you know, don't hoard things. And look at all these boxes of Kleenex in there. Yeah. Oh, that's not good. Okay, so I'm telling you now, that's why I have so many boxes of Kleenex in there. Because I don't want you to lose faith in me after I die over my Kleenex boxes. Okay. You know, God forbid you put that in the obituary. <laughs> and she was the proud owner of five boxes of soft tissue. <laughs> Yeah. Or maybe you have, you know, little trinkets from when you were little. Yeah. Trinkets and stuff like that that you have. Somebody's going to go through them. What is this garbage? Or this is really beautiful here. Put it in your mandalas. You know, offer it to the Buddha. But that's my, that was the gift my great-grandmother gave me when I turned three. How can you do that and give it away? It's, uh, it sounds ridiculous. Do the meditation and imagine this. And it's amazing what comes in the mind. Okay, attachment to reputation. Then you really begin to understand Nancy Reagan. You know, and who was that? It was because she had her whole funeral planned out and the guest list and how her hair was going to be done and everything like that. Yeah. And then there was some actress, too. Do you remember who it was? Who, who again, you know, was Joan Rivers? She had a facelift after she died. Yeah. So, you know, you want to look good for your funeral. So you don't want to look bad. Okay. It, yeah, it's quite amazing. Quite amazing what people do. Yeah. Uh, do you have it picked out what you're going to wear when you when they put you in the casket? Yeah. But which <laughs> which set of robes? Yeah. I knew somebody 
He had a set of robes that he only wore when he saw his holiness. And then he had all the other all the other sets of robes that he wore at other times. Okay? So do you have one set of robes? Yeah. Do you want them to bury you in robes with an elastic band where everybody knows <laughs> that you cheated? <laughs> or are you, do you want them to somehow put it on with all the folds so everybody will think that you're wearing your robes correctly according to the tradition? Mm -hmm. Yeah, write it down in your will. <laughs> okay, so, so yeah, we're laughing, but just, just look at your mind. Very interesting. Okay, and then imagine, you know, what it's like as your body gets weaker and weaker, as your senses start failing. Are you going to say goodbye to people early and then spend more time alone? Are you going to welcome visitors until the end? Yeah, do you want to have lots of people around you? Do you not want to have people around you? And what happens if you can't control it and somebody who you don't want to be there when you die turns up and they're there? What are you going to do then? Yeah. And what happens if you want to die at home and somebody takes you to the hospital and you're in a room where somebody is watching uh, Donald Trump's rallies while you're trying to die? Yeah. How are you going to handle that? Okay. So imagine many different things and, and imagine what it's going to be like as your cognitive abilities start uh, degenerating and you can't think so clearly. And you want to do your practice and you get everything confused. You start out doing a practice that you've done day after day for years and you can't remember the next step. Or you can't remember the mantra that goes with it. Yeah. How are you going to deal with, you know, your, your body losing energy and the unclarity that that produces in the mind? Mm -hmm. And then especially, uh, you know, when you realize that it's probably not going to be tomorrow, it very well may be today. Many of the Tibetan lamas, when they fall very ill and they can no longer do their daily commitments, they ask their friends or students to sit by the bedside and do the daily commitments for them to chant everything out loud, you know, as if they're doing it because they feel so strongly the importance of doing their daily commitments every day, even on the day when they die. Yeah. So if you put that in your Dharma will, uh, and what happens if you have pages and pages of commitments? Yeah. Will your friends do all that for you before you die? 
Yeah, when you're supposed to do the long sadhana and they want to do the short one <laughs> and you're dying and you want to say, no, it's got to be the long one. And they say, well, I don't understand that. I've never done it. Okay, so many things to think here. A very effective kind of meditation. And just, you know, coming across each thing where your mind doesn't want to let go and then working with your mind and imagining letting go of that and letting go of that and letting go of that, you know. And I can't take my plastic paper clips with me. Yeah, so if I'm sending a message, I can give it to somebody in plastic paper clips instead of the wire ones because I want to keep the, the plastic ones for myself even though I never use them. Yeah, because you're saving them. Yeah, you'll find lots of plastic paper clips in my drawer. <laughs> Please take them and use them, okay? But it's very interesting, you know, and uh, how it, you know, when you can't control things that you've always controlled. Mm -hmm. And you just have to go along with what's happening because you have no power over it at this moment. Okay. So let's go into the section on page 219 in the book called The Death Process. So this is uh, talking about it from the perspective of the highest yoga tantra that lays out, um, you know, what goes on when we die. Okay. Oh, I didn't do a chart. But uh, you can you can make a chart from this about each element, the sense organ or the sense consciousness that absorbs the wisdom that is actualized, the internal vision, the external uh, um, event, you know, that happens in your body. So you know you can make a chart that has all these things. So Hayas Yoga Tantra explains the death process in great detail. Eight steps occur as the body gradually loses its ability to support coarse levels of consciousness. And as the mind becomes increasingly subtler until the subtlest mind, the fundamental innate clear light mind, dawns. That is the actual moment of death. In the next moment, the mind leaves the body and enters the bardo. At that time, the person is dead. When I was working with this, uh, with, uh, with Geshila, he, he said to me, okay, what's the moment of death? And I said, it's the, that final clear light. And he said, no. Because when you have that final uh, 
you know, subtle as clear light that dawns, your consciousness is still in the body. You are still technically alive. Death is the moment after the consciousness leaves the body. So I wonder in cases where they have lamas who die in a hospital, if but then go into tukdam, you know, where they're meditating on the clear light. Uh, do the hospital people put the day of death uh, when they stop breathing? Or uh, can they wait until the consciousness leaves? Would they even count that? Probably not. Yeah. So then do you take the body home? Yeah, but then it's, you know, bouncing up and down in a vehicle. So, yeah, it's something to, to think about, you know, where, uh, you know, where do you want to die? And what happens if you can't control where you're dying, where it, when it happens at that moment? I, one of my teachers, he, um, he was a really great meditator. And, you know, he knew when he was dying. And his attendant, you know, wanted to keep Geshe-la alive at all costs and put him in a car and race the car down to Chandagar and thinking that the, the doctors in the Chandagar hospital could maybe save geshe and he died in the taxi. Yeah? And I thought, wow, you know, it would have been so much better just to leave him peacefully because he knew he was dying yeah? and without having to die with his, you know, head in, in his student's lap in the taxi before they even reached the hospital, which mean they had to just turn around and drive back. What it says here seems to be that it's when the uh, clear light mind dawns, that is the moment of death. Mm -mm. But what you just said was the moment of death is when, is the next moment after that. Right. But it's not necessarily a moment, it could be hours or days. Yeah, but moment, yeah, moment means the time, the it, it says here, you know, you have the dawning of the innate clear light mind. Oh, so it does say that is the actual moment of death. That is not the actual. So please note this in the corrections. Okay. In the next moment, the mind leaves the body and enters the bardo. That is the moment of death. But maybe you need to clarify, too, that it's not necessarily the next moment. It could be <laughs> later. Yeah, but moment is one of those words in Buddhism that has many different meanings. So it doesn't, moment means, I asked one time, the amount of time it takes for something to happen. So it depends on what is happening, how long that moment is. So it doesn't mean, you know, at uh, seven o'clock, but once one second, and then seven o'clock and two seconds is the next moment. It, the next moment in different activities could be later. But maybe you could just say when the clear light ends and right and leaves that and the consciousness leaves the yeah. body. Yeah. Okay, it's just 
Sounds a little yeah, strange. Yeah, it's, it's incorrect here when it says that is the actual moment of death. It's not. It's the moment after the clear light leaves the body. Yeah. At e as each element dissolves, that is, as it loses its ability to support consciousness. So that's what dissolve or absorb means. Yeah, it loses its ability to support consciousness. Our aggregates weaken, and we have an inner appearance to the mind. So when the earth element dissolves into the water element, yeah, so that doesn't mean that all the earth element in your body, uh, you know, uh, turns into little atoms and then blends into the liquid in your body. It doesn't mean that. It means the, ele the element of earth uh, that supported some aspect of consciousness and physical functioning becomes non-functional itself. Okay? So when the earth element dissolves into the water element, and dissolving into the water element, dissolving into another element, means that that element becomes prominent. Okay? So the body becomes thinner. Yeah, that's the outer signal. The form aggregate, so that's the aggregate that's affected. The body weakens. And the person has an inner shimmering appearance like a mirage because the um, water element is now prominent since the earth element lost its, its energy. Okay? So that inner... Um, uh, appearance, nobody else can see. It's to the person themselves uh, that's dying. Then the second stage, when the water element dissolves into fire, the mouth becomes dry and the skin puckers. So you can see the fire, the water element is loose. It loses energy. The fire element becomes stronger. Yeah. So the, the mouth is dry, the skin becomes dry. The feeling aggregate loses the ability to experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. So in the case of a very slow death, you know, you may stay in this stage, you know, in any of these stages for hours, maybe even a day, depending how, how long it is, or maybe just a few minutes or even a few seconds. Okay, so first your form aggregate kind of loses energy. Then your feeling aggregate can't feel pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. That's got to be really disorienting. Huh? And the person has an inner appearance of smoke. So it's as if, you know, completely surrounded by smoke. That might be rather unpleasant. Then third, when the fire element dissolves into the wind element, the heat in the body diminishes. Uh, so the body, yeah, is losing heat. Sometimes the heat leaves beginning with the feet and going upward, other times that from the head downward. They say if it leaves from the feet going up, that that is a sign of a good rebirth, but it leaves from the head going down. It's not a good sign. The aggregate of discrimination subsides 
So you can't, you lose the ability to discern different objects and what they are. And the inner appearance is of sparks of light, like on a really dark night when there's fireflies just sparking around. Okay. So that's the fire dissolving into the wind. So the fireflies is the, you know, the wind. When the wind element dissolves into space or into consciousness, the external breath stops. So this is the time uh, that they may sign your death certificate. What do they do now? Is it when the breath stops, when the heart stops, when the brain stops? When you're going to pronounce, you take the stethoscope and listen for the heartbeat. And if it's silent, then that's time of death. That's the you time know. of death. It's a very, mm, it's not an accurate thing at all. Yeah. You know. When does the breath stop? Can it stop way before that or after that? Mm. It depends on what's going on and who. I mean, in two, you can move a person and then they'll have another breath, but it's just air coming out of the lungs. So mm. it's not really, a, you know. Um, yeah. But it's, it's the heart. It's the it's heart. When the, when and no the brain? Life. Can it keep making brain waves after the heart stops? Mm, no. No? It's flatline? Yeah, it's flatline usually. Mm. I mean, that's one of the ways that they, when people are on respirators, Mm -hmm. and it's breathing for them and, you know, circulating the blood, and yet they're brain dead. The, reason, the way that you figure that out is that their EEG is flat. You know, yeah. there's, no, there's no spikes. Right. So they're brain activity. dead, but the heart's still beating, so yeah. they're alive. Yeah. Well, so, supposedly. Yeah, <laughs> they're not alive. But, yeah. You know, yeah. It's artificial. Mm. Okay, so the aggregates of miscellaneous the aggregate of miscellaneous factors loses power. That's the aggregate with all your emotions and thoughts and different things like that. And there's an appearance of a small dim candle flight, candle flame about to go out. Yeah. At this point, breathing has stopped completely. The body grows cold. And the coarse consciousnesses have been absorbed. Doctors pronounce the person dead. From, but from a Buddhist perspective, the consciousness has not yet left the body. Okay, and then the fifth through the seventh stages. So now the coarse winds, so the inner energies that serve as the mount of the coarse consciousnesses, these begin to dissolve. So as with the previous stages of dissolution, the time it takes to pass through the next, through, next three phases varies with the person, the cause of death, and the person's spiritual training. Okay, so there's no set time that you stay in any of these stages. Yeah, so those of you who like to follow a schedule, have everything planned out, and not deviate from the schedule and have everything start on time, you might have to learn to become a little bit more relaxed. Okay.
So these three phases, five, six, and seven, are inner appearances to the mind. So the first one is called the vivid white appearance, and that uh, is an appearance that looks like the bright light of the full moon. Yeah, so that's, it's not like I'm here looking at the full moon. It's everything is that bright light. Yeah, like the full moon. Then the sixth vision is the red increase appearance. And that's like the uh, orange-red color of the sky at sunset. Or sometimes they say the sky at dawn. Mm -hmm. And then that too is like everywhere. And the seventh is the black near attainment of complete darkness. And uh, if you've had any kind of subtle consciousness until then, then sometime in the black near attainment, it's like you swoon and you go unconsciousness, unconscious. And then uh, the eighth stage is now the subtlest mind, the fundamental innate clear light mind manifests. This is the actual moment of death, although that's not correct, so it needs to change on two pages. Anyway, the one that Jeffrey Hopkins wrote, and it does say that the clear light mind is the actual... Is the actual death. moment of death? It's, let me just see what it says here. This is the actual death. Yeah, when the clear light... It is actual death. Huh. Like yeah. so maybe there's different views. Different yeah, views maybe, different. yeah, because Geshula was quite emphatic that it was after the, the clear light mind left the body. Yeah, okay, well, at least there's some source for saying what I said here. So, yeah, be interesting to find out, take a poll. Be better to find out by being conscious during your own death process, and then you could tell, you could decide yourself. <laughs> I can send paper airplanes from heaven telling you what to change. <laughs> I have a memory that you said that death is a state of mind because that is what's transformed into death, death taking the death, death onto the path of the Dharmakaya. Death is a state of mind. If you're talking, if it's the next moment, then you—that's already a rebirth. The next moment of mind would be a rebirth. So. Mm -hmm. But like I said, when I started r writing this, mm -hmm. I thought that death was the last moment when the subtlest mind was there, and Geshe-la corrected me. Okay, but uh, yeah. So what I said before he corrected me and what I said after may not be the same thing. And there might be scriptural references for both things. Okay, so eight. Now the subtlest mind, the fundamental innate clear light mind manifests. This is the actual moment of death, although the subtlest wind mind is still present in the body. And a well-trained practitioner will meditate on emptiness. Okay, so Ling Rinpoche, uh, at this point, the consciousness was still in the body. He meditated in the clear light for 13 days, and his body was uh, sitting upright during the meditation. And then at a certain point, 
the uh, and, and when his body was upright, there was a little bit of heat here, so they could tell that the consciousness was still in the body. And then when the consciousness left the body, the body slumped a little bit, and that little bit of, of heat disappeared, and then they knew that he had finished his meditation. So there is no rigor mortis, and there may be a slight sense of heat if we hold our hand above the person's heart chakra at the center of her chest. During this time, the relationship between the body and mind has not been severed, and the body does not decay. It is better to avoid touching or moving the body at this time. Okay? So most sentient beings do not recognize the clear light of death, and this phase passes very quickly. Yeah? In fact, they may not recognize any of the inner visions at, at death. When the mind leaves the body, small traces of a white or red substance at the nostrils or sexual organ may be seen. The body begins to decay and can safely be moved. For ordinary beings, this usually occurs within three days after the breath has stopped, and many times quite, you know, even sooner. In the hospital, what, what was your experience when rigor mortis started and, you know, it was clear that consciousness was no longer there? Was there a wide variety or was there... So, wide variety, yeah. yeah, very different with each person, mm -hmm. and how cold or some people as they were dying were really cold, starting from the feet and moving up, and mm -hmm. as it moved up, then and then they would die. Other people were warm the whole time, hmm. um, even after death, and the body was still warm. Um, yeah, every every configuration. I mean, all the causes and conditions that create, that. yeah. Too much to even know. Yeah, yeah, because uh, physically it's going to depend a lot on the state of your body before you die, too, how strong the elements are. And then mentally, whether you have the vision, you know, if you've been training to recognize those visions or not. If a person dies in an accident, the consciousness generally leaves the body quickly. Some practitioners, especially those who have practiced highest yoga tantra, may meditate in the clear light for several days. I heard of some Tibetan monks who, after being tortured in Chinese prison, sat cross-legged in their cells and remained meditating in the clear light of death for some time. Thinking that Buddhism was just blind faith and superstition, the Chinese communist guards were surprised and speechless. For people who practice the Dharma sincerely and continuously, dying is not a frightening event, but a joyful experience and an optimal time for meditation. Why is it an optimal time? Because your senses aren't functioning, so you don't have so much distraction. And your the course levels of mind have absorbed, you know, and they're the ones that have so much distraction too. 
After separating from the body, the eight signs occur in the reverse order as a slightly coarser mind arises in the bardo, the intermediate stage. If we will be born in a fortunate realm, it will seem like we are walking on a luminous path surrounded by beauty. If we are headed towards an unfortunate birth, we will have the vision of walking in a gloomy place with fearful images and will experience fear and suffering. It is said that butchers who have not purified their actions of killing will see the image of animals they have slaughtered running towards them. Bardo beings can travel uninterruptedly from one place to another. Those who will be born in similar realms can see one another, and people with clairvoyant powers can also see Bardo beings. For ignorant sentient beings, the Bardo can be frightening and confusing. And, you know, it's not like people are so aware that, you know, they kind of wake up in the bardo and go, oh, I've just woken up in the bardo. Now this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And no, it's just, you know, you're pushed by karma and you're confronted by all these new experiences. And then you're trying to make some sense of what these new experiences are because nobody's done an introduction to the course, giving you the outline of what's going to happen. You die and you're there and you have to really go with the flow at that time, you know. They're, they're not going to give you a program of what's going to happen and how, you know, and so on. So sometimes when I get on uh, transoceanic flights, it makes me think about dying because... I'm leaving one reality and then there's this period in this environment, limited, enclosed environment with a lack of air. And then you wake up and you're in another reality where it's a different culture and they speak different languages and things are really different. And it's, and sometimes, you know, you wake up and, oh, I've been here before and my friends are at the airport. Sometimes you get off the flight and it's like, I don't know anybody, you know, and who can I trust and who's going to help me and what do I have to be aware of? And, uh, you know, can if you can imagine dying and, uh, you know, this is... You, you get some consciousness in your next life and it isn't like everything's familiar. You know, maybe you don't have hands and legs to move at that time. And maybe it's not your usual alarm clock bells waking you up. And maybe you no longer speak English. Yeah. Or maybe the people around you don't look like the people you were used to. Yeah, they look quite different. I mean, all the different kinds of living beings and how they look. And there's probably many different forms. We have no idea at all how they look. And we're born into that world and we have to make sense of it. Yeah. 
So I think sometimes how incredibly confusing it must be for babies. Yeah. No, because uh, we rely so much on our conceptual consciousnesses to get an idea of what's going to happen, who we can trust, what we can and should do, and what things mean. And when you get reborn, there's none of that. Yeah, because all your language ability disappeared when you left your consciousness, you know, your human consciousness of the, the previous life. One question and one question online. Um, so when you were reading through when the feeling aggregate loses the ability to experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings, mm -hmm. you said that would be quite disorientating. I'm wondering why. And then... Okay, one question at a time. So imagine sitting here and you no longer experience any sensations from what you hear, see, smell, taste, or touch. There's no sense of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. You don't feel anything. Yeah, so just imagine that and, you know, does it feel normal? Okay. And then I guess related to that, and maybe perhaps answered by that, um, is I've read that some, some of these visions can be quite disturbing. Mm -hmm. But after the pleasant, unpleasant, after the, the feeling aggregate dissolves, then how are the visions after that disturbing if there's no ability to... to okay, because the disturbing visions they're talking about occur before the feeling aggregate dissolves. The karma that is going, that influences what you're going to be reborn as, that occurs before, that starts to ripen before the fifth stage. Okay, because there's like that prayer by Pabonka and Bechet describing the dissolution where it's like the, the, the fire element, which is which dissolves after, is scary. No, the fire element is, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but at the time when when everything really switches is when the breath stops and you go into the white appearance because that's when all your conceptual minds have stopped. So all these appearances and visions and thoughts and fear and or whatever it is, that happens before that time. Anyway, you can read some books and, you know, okay. if it seems... If my explanation doesn't fit, read, do some reading on it. Okay. And then from online, uh, someone is asking, how does organ donation work in this context? If someone cultivates bodhicitta and offers an organ, the mm -hmm. organs need to be harvested quickly before the last steps of the dissolution. Right. So where does the subtle mind go? or How is it affected? Yeah. So this, this is something to really consider, um, you know, what are when the they harvest the organ the breath the the breath has stopped right so the person is pronounced dead and then immediately they they harvest the organ most um, uh, donations come from people that are brain dead so a massive brain injury mm -hmm. and they keep the body alive 
with the, you know, being intubated and keep mm-hmm. the blood pumping, etc., mm-hmm. to keep the organs viable. And then they uh-huh. uh, talk with the family or the family knows that the person wants to donate. Mm-hmm. Then they um, get all the people uh, that are going to take the organs to the hospital and then they take them down. Uh, often they'll, uh, uh, you know, take the tubes out and the family gets to see them die. And, it, you know, mm-hmm. it usually doesn't take very long. And then right after that, then they go down to the operating room and they mm-hmm. take the organs. So yeah. it's quick, quick. Okay. So the person isn't conscious at, at, at all no, 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 during no. any of that. No, 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 no. Yeah. No. But, but what would happen in terms of the clear light, it's, we don't really know. Yeah, because, uh, you know, and how, how much uh, having surgery at that time, you know, whether the, whether the mind is even still in the body, if they're keeping uh, a brain-dead person alive artificially, is the consciousness still in the body? We don't really know the answer to that. And, uh, it, you know, if it is in the body, when they harvest, you know, at what point does it leave? When they uh, stop the intubation, when they take out the organ? So I, I don't think I can give a specific answer to that. Yeah. It may dis- disturb the death process, but it may be that that person, uh, you know, that the consciousness has already left, too. We don't really know. Um, what is the meaning of the increase and the red increase appearance and the near attainment? in the? Black I think the near attainment must mean that you're close to the clear light. The red increase Increase, I don't know, maybe because the color is coming strong. I, I don't really know. As someone else asks, um, they're wondering that when the feeling aggregate loses the ability to experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, that it would become a sense of equanimity? I have no idea. <laughs> I have died innumerable times, and I cannot remember any of them. Yeah, and I don't remember reading that anywhere. Okay. But also, when it says, like, the feeling organ aggregate dissolves, it doesn't mean, okay, turn off the switch. You don't feel anything anymore after this point. Okay, remember, this is a process. So the feeling aggregate is diminishing, yeah, you your hear your ability to hear is being lost. They usually say the hearing stops. Does that mean the hearing actually, you know, okay, that one second now you've had that vision, hearing has stopped and feeling has stopped. You know, at 701.1 seconds, it's all stopped. You know, I don't think things are like that. You know, it's a process. It's sticky. It's messy. 
You know, you're losing that ability. When it says the feeling stops, does that mean you don't feel anything after that? You know, even when you're going through the other things. Yeah. And then you say, but then it doesn't match up because feeling stops in the second dissolution. And you said your conceptual mind stops after the fourth and it doesn't match up. So if the karma is, you know, uh, ripening during the fourth dissolution, how can you be afraid? Because you shouldn't, because it's all been absorbed. You know, I don't know that things are, you know, happen, uh, in such lockstep um, you know, things like that. Our conceptual mind wants everything to be all nice. Yeah. But you want to say, you've watched many people die. Do you want to say, I mean, what you've seen in terms of people feeling or thinking or, you know, what's going on? Well, I think the experience that highlights this the most is that a person dies and uh, somebody listens to their heart, the heartbeat's gone, and they're pronounced dead. And then, uh, you know, the body is prepared and we put them in a body bag and then we're taking them down to the morgue. And then the person sits up. So what is that? <laughs> so it's... it's <laughs> So it's messy, yeah. Yeah. When they sit up, are they conscious? Do they talk? They, yeah. Then you un, you know, the one time that happened, you know, we unzip the body bag, and they're saying, "Where am I?" And it's like, "Okay, this is not um, a death run now. We'll go back to your room." <laughs> you know, and that person then soon after did die, and they uh -huh. stayed dead. But you know. <laughs> So it's very messy, you know? Yeah. It's very messy. I made special coffins for this. There's some kind of, yeah. there's a lot of history around mm -hmm. this happening and people being in coffins and then, you know. In, in the late Victorian age in, in uh, England, there were many cases of this happening. So they would put bells on top of the coffin with a string uh, that was tied to the person's hand when they were dead, so that if they woke up in the coffin, they could pull the string and ring the bell, and then somebody would take them out of the coffin. Yeah. And this was how there was some really big train, um, uh, you know, where they ripped off tons of money from a train. And somehow it was involved with this. I think maybe the the thieves um, pretended to be dead, and then they got on the chain and rang the bell, and everybody freaked out. They opened the thing, but they freaked out, and then that way the thieves were on the train, and they ripped off all this money. And it was really and with a what do they call it? A heist? Yeah. Yeah, it was one of the big train robberies. Mm -hmm. So you can probably look it up on the computer, but it was related to this because there were many people at that time that would die and then sit up like that and, you know, ring the bell and let me out of here. It's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about it, 
you know, what you were saying is some bodies are warm after the breath stops, some are cold. You know, it doesn't, your body was supposed to get cold before. And what are you going to say? Hey, you know, you didn't die according to the outline. <laughs> yeah. Your body was supposed to be cold before this. Yeah. Or, you know, what do you do? You know, like the hearing is the second stage to, to dissolve. But we often say prayers and say things to people even after that particular stage, you can tell that the water has absorbed, but we can tell that the person still, and supposedly that the hearing has ceased, but we still chant prayers and speak to the person, and they seem to have some reaction to it. So does it mean, you know, that the hearing stops, you just turn off the switch, or does it mean that the hearing is losing energy and, you know, gradually... And that different things happen at, uh, you know, finally end at different times for different people. Okay. So this is an outline, you know, to kind of give us some idea of what's going to happen. But like, you know, like I said, what are we going to do? Somebody's dying and, and we're going to say, hey, you know, you're doing this out of order, you know, just like you. <laughs> you know, you do things in life, you did things out of order. Now you're doing things out of order. You know, this is all supposed to happen at the same time, and it hasn't. <laughs> so Ken and I went to Gethsemane. They bury all the monks there in uh, uh, wooden coffins on their site mm -hmm. in Kentucky there. But when Thomas Merton died, and they laughed about him, and they said something about him, he had to be different. That's <laughs> what they said. That was their joke about him. Because he died actually in, in Southeast Asia. Yeah. So he had an actual coffin, coffin, like a and so they joke about that even when we were there. I don't know how many decades that was after he passed away. Yeah. Did oh, they bring the body back? Yeah, they brought the body back uh -huh. and buried it there, but they said, Yeah, he always had to be different. <laughs> <laughs> Questions from online. Uh Jolene from Singapore is asking, if someone dies suddenly and the breath leaves the body suddenly, does the death does the death process differ? Yeah, it goes very, very quickly. And then Venerable Losang is asking, so feeling is one of the five omnipresent mental factors. When the course levels of mind dissolve, do the other mental factors also dissolve? Well, that's what I was saying. Which each stage, there's an elemental, an element that dissolves, and then a corresponding a physical thing that happens as a result and an aggregate loses its power and you have an internal sign. So all of these are grouped together in these eight different stages. Okay. I don't know if that answers the question, but it's a best I can understand. Okay. Now the section that says helping ourselves and others at the time of death. Our attitudes shape our experiences. Some people avoid thinking about difficulties such as aging, such as illness, aging, and death. But these are bound to happen, and accepting and preparing for them in advance enables our mind to be calmer when they occur. Okay, so really accepting them 
And preparing for them doesn't mean physically preparing, although that can be helpful. It means mentally preparing, you know? And I think, uh, you know, mentally preparing to age or, you know, it's, it's something, you know, I studied a lot about it and read a lot about it, and yes, I'm going to be an old person, and, you know, that's going to happen, and, you know, I all the things about how they say it's good, it doesn't happen too quickly, because if you, if you looked at yourself in the mirror when you were 20, and then the next day you were 80, you would faint from horror about how different you looked, and... Okay, so, you know, I'm going to be ready for all this stuff. And uh, it doesn't exactly go as you planned. Yeah, I see some nodding heads. Yeah, it doesn't go as you planned. So, you know, it's useful preparing physically. It's useful preparing mentally. But don't expect everything to go as you've laid it out. Yeah. What's been interesting for you about aging that you didn't anticipate? I think it's the access to energy or the incons you know, to, to really be able to feel the life energy is actually draining from the body. And it's not like, you know, pouring down the toilet so fast, but but it's a very different, and that sensation I didn't anticipate because you think, well, okay, I'll be smart up till this point, or I'll be agile up until this point, or <laughs> you know, I, I can accept that these sort of gross external things will change, but that the power, that the fuel inside that's making those things mm -hmm. diminishes, mm -hmm. that's not even something I think one could anticipate mm. until you experience it. Yeah. yeah, to not have so much physical or mental energy. Yeah. 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 Because we all kind of have our own uh, image of how we're going to age. Yeah. So, yes, my body will grow old. I'll get, you know, a few wrinkles here, a few gray hairs here, you know. But I'll still be very attractive. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to have, you know, my skin... It's not going to be like my grandma's skin, you know, like with all the spots and the circle, certain kind of crinkliness, you know, where all the cells in your skin show. And it's like, oh, well, I kind my grandma had that. I knew that sometime I'd get that, but it wasn't supposed to happen so soon. You know, I'm going to get it, but, you know, n n not in my 60s, not in my 70s. Maybe when I'm 105. <laughs> yeah. Right, so why does my skin and, you know, my face too and my neck? Oh, my God. Look at my neck. That's how you really tell how old people are, you know? I never understood that. I, I read something where somebody said, it was a book called, I Hate My Neck. <laughs> I asked somebody, I said, why, why would somebody hate their neck? You know, and then they explained because I had never noticed it. 
that when you age, your neck really changes and you can really see how old somebody is very often through their neck. Yeah. Even with plastic surgery on their face. Yeah. Yeah, even they do plastic surgery on the face. And I, and then you think, well, you know, my neck won't get like that. <laughs> or, you know, I read Seventeen magazine, and they said, you know, to, uh, to keep your neck in, in shape, you have to score like that. Yeah. Didn't you read Seventeen magazine? Yeah, well, maybe it didn't happen. Not in Seventeen magazine, because it won't project. It's probably in good housekeeping. Yeah, yeah, you're too young when you're in Seventeen magazine. Good housekeeping. And they teach you to do that exercise, and then that will, you know, keep your neck firm. Now everybody's going to go around. You know, prior to, prior to our stand-up meeting, everybody will <laughs> every morning. Oh, oh. okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So you always think, you know, I'm going to plan this out, but then there's these things that happen that you didn't plan for. Oh, yeah. Yeah, flab. <laughs> Look, I don't have so much. Yeah. But if I don't, if I don't clench my head, if I go like that, see? It is just so flabby like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I got to get back in the forest, you know? Yeah. Then... I won't tell you other stories. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but wait until you can't get up off the floor. Okay, that's a real experience. That that was never supposed to happen. You know, where you can't get up on the floor, and the way you get up is you look so ungraceful. And so completely, you know, like a frog or what <laughs> you look like, you know, because like your arms are in different places and your legs are in different places and your your tushes in the air and and you know and you're trying to push yourself up and you're wondering, is my arm gonna make it? <laughs> Yeah, and then you look across, very, well, Jigme is so consoling to me, you know. When I sit next to her and Pooja, it's really consoling because there's two of us desperately trying to get up off the floor. <laughs> you know, and I never thought, you know, I mean, I planned for everything else, but I didn't plan mentally for that, to not be able to get up, you know. And I know, but I can eventually get up, you know. My parents got to the point, well, my mom, she was never in very good shape. So early on, she couldn't get up, but my dad could, and, and she would, he would help her up. And then one day, ne both of them fell. Neither of them could get up off the floor. They had to call 911 for somebody to come and pick them up off the floor. 
Oh, yeah, that's never going to happen to me. Uh, <laughs> wait for tomorrow. services and come back. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so she comes downstairs one day, you know, <laughs> looking for you guys. Yeah, then you'll know. Or but probably before that you'll hear a thud. <laughs> yeah. So uh yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> there are different levels of preparation for death. While some uh, rare and exceptional practitioners with deep meditative experience can control the process of death and rebirth, ordinary people like me prepare for death as part of our daily meditation practice. If death comes in the next few months or years, I am not afraid and even have some confidence. According to reasoning and some unusual experiences I've had, I have a 95% belief in future lives. <laughs> when did His Holiness start thinking in percentage? <laughs> okay, but there's still a little doubt about the various experiences at the time of death. As creatures of habit, we tend to die in the way we live. If we are not in the habit of acting kindly during our life, it will be unlikely that we will uh, think to hold virtuous thoughts in mind or engage in virtuous actions as we are approaching death. For that reason, leading a good life by not harming others and helping them as much as possible is the best preparation for our death and future lives and enables us to die without regret. Okay, so first of all, karmically, you know, having that motivation and living our life through that uh, prevents us from creating negativities and helps us to create virtue. And second, out of creatures of habit, being familiar with that, then when we die, hopefully that same motivation will arise. In our daily life, and especially as we approach death, we should forgive people who have harmed us, engage in purification practice, recollect the Buddha, and meditate on love, compassion, and wisdom. Okay, so don't wait until death is really, really close to start doing this because we don't know when we're going to die and it could happen soon, you know. And also, if you wait until, you know, you can you really feel like death is coming soon, then you don't have so much time to practice. So now, you know, when we have the time to practice and the energy to do so, it's it's good to put that energy in that direction. I've, not, I've never heard about wisdoms that actualize at each of these eight levels. You mentioned that at the beginning. Yeah. Didn't yeah. See, here I just did it because this is the only the second volume. So, you know, I didn't go into all the detail about the eight stages, 
but there's five different wisdoms that correlate with five di- the five Dhyani Buddhas that correlate with the five major afflictions that correlate with these different stages as you're dying. Yeah, it just says it is called increase of appearance because of being very vivid like sunlight. Maybe it's just a brighter so, yeah, light. The, the vivid or the brightness is increasing. Maybe something like Your attainment that. is because you're close to the clear light. Yeah. And does it say about the... Uh, okay, that was the vividness and the increase is... This one, white. It's called appearance because an appearance like moonlight dawns. Mm-hmm. And then... The second one is, it's called red increase, but it just explains the meaning of increase, increase of appearance because of being very vivid like sunlight. Hmm. Okay. Because the first one, the white one, is called vivid white appearance. I guess they're all vivid. What? Yeah, they're all quite vivid. I would think so, you know, because your mouth, your mind doesn't have all this distraction from the sense consciousnesses and sense organs. Mm-hmm. I do like to take opportunities as we live here at the Abbey on natural things that occur here to kind of get a little bit of a sense. Mm-hmm. Like when we do our, we haven't done one in a while, but doing those full moon walks in the forest where there yes. are moon shadows, yeah. when we stand out in that landing and to see that you can see almost the lines in your hand because the moonlight is so bright. Yeah. The sunsets that we have sometimes that are so beyond orange, beyond scarlet. Mm-hmm. The nights where there is nothing that you can't even see the palm of your hand, and any burn piles we do at night where the where the sparks yeah. are, you know, I try to remember those things that this might yeah. be what a little bit what it might be like. Yeah, you know? yeah, and that's why they give those examples because the examples are something that we have some experience with. This one is asking. I heard the process reverses in some way when going towards a birth after the butter. How could this work, and is that true? Yeah, that it, there was a sentence in here that said that, you know, that after the subtlest clear light, then you get the signs in reverse as you go into the bardo, you know? And what's happening is just that uh, some of the, the coarser states of mind are very slowly, very gradually starting to, to emerge. Or maybe they happen very quickly. I don't know. In different cases. Going back to your recommendation that we, you know, bring to mind so many different scenario scenarios, even of aging. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was very young in my Buddhist practice, I had the opportunity to accompany my cousin to a cancer clinic, mm-hmm. and she was going to get chemotherapy. I had no idea what chemotherapy was. And so here I am, I'm supposed to be the support person, right? Driving mm-hmm. with her in the car. I was having a mental breakdown. I was just trying to calm myself. And my cousin was just fine. And then going into the building, I thought, how am I going to maintain my, how how am I going to be a support? And I was just really, really overwhelmed because I'd never done any kind of preparation. 
And then going into the room where people had various levels of hair and no hair, and everyone is hooked up to this IV getting chemo. And I sat in there and it was such a profound teaching of how unprepared I was at mm -hmm. that time mm -hmm. to see that this indeed could be a possibility. Yeah. And I was um, appalled at my lack of preparation and my mental state. And mm -hmm. my, my cousin was actually supporting me. Mm -hmm. That's not the way it should go. Yeah. It, it really shows how much um, we have I solid ideas about the way things should be or the way life is. Yeah. I mean, could you ever imagine living in a in a place where uh, there's actual war going on, and the place where you're living is getting bombed? You know, it seems incomprehensible. But how many people live in that condition? It's a very real condition. Yeah, or even what we've been hearing. You know, how many times do people with with white skin? think I'm going to go down to the store and, you know, get shot or get pulled over by the police or, you know, you never think of that. And yet that's many people's experience. You know, they don't know what's going to happen. So, uh, yeah, the ability to have a big mind, you know, and learn from other people's experiences and to be flexible, mentally flexible. And it's like, well, I didn't have this written in my calendar, but it's happening. So I'm adjusting and to be able to adjust quickly. This will be the last comment. Just a comment to say that that's so much the part of the preciousness of being a training in this community is because that is brought up to the face a lot more is that we have so little control and what are we going to do when the day doesn't start, go through, <laughs> and end the way that we had thought yeah. to see them all as these little deaths to expectations of what we think is going to happen. Yeah. Or should, huh? or should. Or should happen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you have your, you, you, just even from you wake up in the morning, like, I woke up, and she ran outside. Mm -hmm. And it's like, <laughs> that wasn't supposed to happen first thing in the morning. Yeah, and now it's going to mess my whole day up. <laughs> and, and then... Two minutes later, she was back at the door meowing to come in. But, you know, just just to see the reaction of, you know, first thing, because I had just really literally gotten out of bed. I was taking a bug outside. I had, there's all sorts of little creatures who I share my blanket with. <laughs> Not blood, bed blood, bled love. <laughs> But, you know, there's the, I have, you know, I mean, I imagine you have them too. They come crawling out. So, you know, you take them outside. So she snuck out at the same time. I was like, oh, now I got to deal with this. <laughs> you know? And just, just watching how the mind works. 
You know, this wasn't in my calendar, you know. Couldn't you have told me last night you were going to do this so I would be ready, you know? But no. 